Good to see you all. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open up to Genesis chapter 15 as we continue along in this series looking at the life of Abraham. And we've been discovering and walking along this Old Testament figure who's the forefather of our faith and learning, hopefully, how you and I as modern day people could live in our faith based on the promises of God in a world that is secular, individual, pluralistic, individualistic. And Abraham, even though he lived centuries ago, teaches us lifelong eternal lessons of how the church and Christians like you and me are able to do this in a modern contemporary context. And so we're going to continue this study looking at Genesis 15. I'm going to read the whole chapter. So if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Pray that your, your hearts and your minds will be open here this morning. Please receive and hear God's word for us in the church today, starting with verse 1 in Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will become will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess but he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half, and when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land, and from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the, and the Jebusites. This is God's word. You can take your seats. Well, this is a, a theologically rich passage. We could probably, and indeed actually they do in seminary, spend weeks looking at Genesis 15, which more classically is called the Abrahamic Covenant. And we saw sort of the precursor to this in Genesis 12. This is more the ratification of it, the solidifying it, the formalizing of it, and then we see an extension of it in Genesis 17. But I want to try to take this central chapter in all of biblical history and to make it intensely practical for you and me today. 
Because what this passage is really talking about, and what I want to dialogue with you here this morning, is really this idea of assurance, reassurance and comfort. Because whether you are aware or not, you and I all need reassurance in our lives. Maybe we're facing something in this world that is uncertain, maybe disease, a fracturing of relationships, financial distress, parenting challenges, um, maybe you're a child and your parents are a challenge to you and to your freedom and your ability to be a kid. But all of us have a desire innately because we're human for reassurance and comfort because we live in a broken and fallen world. And the question that this passage in chapter forces us to consider is where do you get your reassurance in this life? And that's what I want to talk to you about here today, this comfort and reassurance, because it speaks to every facet of your life. How do you get comfort and peace? We need comfort and reassurance not only for the past failures of our lives to say, you're still okay. You made some mistakes, but you still are okay. But you also need reassurance for the future aspirations and hopes of our lives, saying, this is my dream and my vision, and I'm not sure if it will happen. Or maybe you look out in the world and you're really scared. And this reassurance comes to us also in the sense of saying, you may not know the future, but life will be okay. Essentially, the idea of reassurance or comfort in our hearts basically says this, you'll be okay, things will be okay, life will be okay. And that's a big promise, even though we live in a broken world, God gives that to us. And so I want to be honest about that in dialogue with you, because if there is anyone who needed reassurance would be Abram in chapter 15. He just defeated four kings and four great nations in chapter 14. Now in chapter 15, the passage and story becomes very personal and intimate. He goes from being a mighty warrior in 14, and now he has a personal, intimate conversation with God in chapter 15. Chapter 14 was a fantastical, adventurous battle between nine different kings. But now chapter 15 is about giving old Abe comfort and reassurance with his life and what he's been through. I mean, for goodness sake, if you just imagine, this is a little bit beyond Scripture, which is dangerous, but if you just imagine Abraham, and he just defeated with 318 men, four kings and nations who were great, saved his son Lot, who didn't deserve this. I mean, you can just imagine, after doing all this, a poor guy, I wonder if he just had PTSD. He must have had a heavy mind, a stressed-out experience and heart. And he's still saying to himself, God, I did all this, but... I don't have a son yet. You still haven't given me a child, and I don't have a land. And that's what God promised him. And after all going through all this, Abraham is expressing his cathartic emotions. He needs reassurance and comfort, and he has questions about God's promises to him and needs reassurance. And he says, God, I'm still waiting for my son. I'm still waiting for my real estate. I mean, in some ways, it's just what contemporary people, you and I, actually sort of expect and experience too. What, do you, what consumes your heart and your lives? I want a family, and I want a home. And that's what Abraham's struggling with. And so he needs reassurance. He wants a son, and he wants a land. He wants a kingdom, and he wants a people to inhabit that kingdom. And so those are just two simple points that we'll consider, and I think you can apply this idea of how God reassures Abraham to how God will reassure you here today, to comfort you in the midst of your uncertainty and your stress and anxiety. So two broad points to this passage in verses 1 to 6, 
We'll see God reassures Abraham about having a son. And then verses 7 to 21, God reassures Abraham about having a land. You know, they're very symmetrical if you get deep down into the passage. Reassurance of a son and then reassurance of a land. Let's look at this. Reassurance of a son. Well, I've said this, the previous chapter focused on Abraham's actions, but this chapter deals with Abraham's emotions, including verse 12, the horror of great darkness. Now, people with faith are also people with feelings, and feelings can't be neglected or suppressed or discredited or ignored. Your emotions are part of who you are as a human being, so you need your intellect but you also have emotions. And the Bible is holistic in trying to take care of a human being because it wants to address the thoughts of your mind, but also the feelings of your heart. And in Abraham's emotional state, where maybe he has PTSD, sort of being anachronistic about that, but he went through a really deep heartache of emotions, going through war, and now just kind of questioning his future, God comes to him in verse 1 to reassure him of a son. And this is what he says in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. He says, don't be scared. I'll be your shield. I'll be with you. Your reward will be very great. The end will be really fantastic. Now, this one verse in chapter 15, if you know your Bible, we actually have something instrumental here because there are key biblical phrases that we see for the very first time in the Bible in verse 1. And these key biblical phrases get repeated throughout the Bible all the way through the New Testament. Now, the first key phrase that we see here introduced to us in the first time in the Bible in verse 1 is this phrase, the word of the Lord. Because in Abram's emotional state, his doubts, his uncertainty, the word of the Lord came to him. That little phrase there, the word of the Lord, is the first time we see God coming to Abram, representing himself, revealing himself in his truth. Now, God did speak to his people before, but now it sort of takes on a formal, intimate notion, the word of the Lord came. And that phrase there, the word of the Lord, gets repeated throughout the Bible and especially during the prophets. So that emotional state that Abraham's in, God comes to him and comforts him by reassuring him by his word. The word of the Lord came, the first of many throughout the Bible. That phrase, the word of the Lord, conveys a personal relationship intimate spiritual connection. That word of the Lord came always comes to his people, and that shows us that God is digging deeper with Abraham. He's cultivating a more intimate relationship. That's how he's going to reassure Abraham. But the second biblical phrase that we see for the first time, which I want to camp out on and discuss with you here today, is this command in verse 1, fear not, fear not. That's the first time we see this. Abraham, probably sort of guessing here, must have assumed that Abraham was feeling scared or maybe was stressed out about what he went through and what the future holds. But the first time we see this commandment to do not be afraid or fear not is in verse 1. Did you know, in fact, that different permutations and variations of that commandment, fear not, is the number one commandment in the Bible? Do not be afraid, fear not. And the first time we see this is in verse 1. Friends, let me ask you a question. Are you fearful in life? Are you scared of life? Well, let me dig down a little bit deeper. Do you ever get anxious or stressed out? Do you worry about the future? Do you worry about yourself, about your career? Do you worry about getting into college? Do you worry about having friends, 
Do you worry about someone liking your social media posts on Instagram or Snapchat, TikTok? Do you have worries and anxieties and stress? Because if you do, this commandment, the number one commandment in the Bible, to fear not, it's a commandment that comes to you and me. So let's talk about this. Fear, anxiety, stress, all balled up into one. Fear comes to us in our contemporary culture in different names, doesn't it? It comes to us with words such as uneasy, worried, nervous, tense, or you're uptight, you're anxious, you're panicked, you're scared. And even though they all fall on the different points of the spectrum, they all express the one and common experience of humanity. Whether you're a believer or not, if you're a Christian or not, you all have these experiences called fear. They say Eskimos, if you didn't realize this, Eskimos have 40 different words for snow, and sociologists and linguists will say when there's a culture that has so many different words for the same concept, then you know you've hit a very important cultural concern to that ethnic group. And so in our Western culture, in a modern individualistic world, if we have so many different words and variations and synonyms for this experience of fear and anxiety, we hit a very important cultural concern. Fears, friends, are common experience of life. In fact, it's universal. Let's be honest about this. As cool, calm, and collected as you want to be, we're all stressed out inside to various degrees. Everybody knows what it's like to be scared. Everybody knows, knows what it's like to be stressed out or to be anxious. That emotion, fear, is complex. It's multifaceted, it's multidimensional, and so I want to try to clarify and define really what exactly is this experience that's common to humanity? What is fear? So let me try to, let's dialogue a little bit about this. Uh, it is complex, but I think we can boil it down for a little bit of clarity. The first thing we know about fear is that on some level, fear can be really good, isn't it? Because fear is sort of a red alert that protects you for self-preservation. So fear could really be a signal or an alarm that says you're in danger. It alerts you to something that is dangerous. Crossing a busy street, you get scared. Avoiding a falling rock, you move out and jump out of the way. You avoid dark alleys late at night because there's something there that says, I'm a little bit nervous, I'm a little bit fearful and scared. It alerts you to bad situations. So in some sense, being scared and fearful is a good thing, isn't it? Because it makes you alert. It helps you to be self-preserving. At the same time, if it's so good, then why does the Bible and the number one commandment say, don't be fearful? So then you're confused. I thought it was good, but the Bible's number one was frequent commandment, some say 365 times, is actually to not be fearful and to not be afraid. And then on top of that, what's also confusing is the Bible sometimes actually gives a positive commandment about it, and it says, well, don't be afraid, do not fear, but then it says, fear God. Be fearful of the Lord. In fact, Proverbs 1.7 says, do you want real knowledge in this world? Do you want to see things clearly? The beginning of wisdom and knowledge is fear of the Lord. So there's something that seems positive about it, so there's self-preservation, but the number one commandment is to never be afraid. And then we see sprinkled throughout Scripture the commandment to say, fear the Lord, to fear God. In fact, it's the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. So we're all confused and it's a jumble of mess. We're told to fear God, but don't ever be afraid of life. Now, even to make it more complicated, experiences that you and I go through are sort of mixed. We're attracted to something that's dangerous, but we're also scared of it. Isn't that the case? 
attracted to something that is a little bit fearful, but also a little bit apprehensive about it. That's why we like haunted houses, haunted mansions. Why would everyone, anyone go to a haunted mansion? By the way, I love haunted mansions. You know, you go there and it's scary. Like, why would I want to do this? I don't know. I'm attracted to it. There's something fun about that, even though I get really anxious. Same thing with roller coasters. When you go to Magic Mountain, it's really high and really fast. It's scary. It's a thrill ride. Why, why are we attracted to it, but also a little bit apprehensive? Standing on a cliff, bungee jumping. You ever been skydiving? It's really scary, but you also want to do it because it's exhilarating. So even the experiences of fear are really mixed. So is fear good or bad? I think innately it's a good thing, but it depends on the context of whether fear could be something in faith or out of faith. So I think this is what it means to be fearful. I think at its core, most simplistically, when you think about fear, whether it's good or bad, I think the fundamental common human experience for a human like you and me is that fear is a sense in which we are beholding and looking at something that's beyond our control and just bigger than us. We're beholding something that's beyond our capabilities and understanding. That's really at the common expression and experience of fear is that we're placed in a situation when we look at life, it's big. It's bigger than our capacities, our understanding, our control. It's facing something bigger than us. That's why in life, we get anxious and stressed because if you're honest, you're looking at life, and most of life is not under your control. You don't know if you're going to get into a car accident one hour after service. You don't know if your children will grow up to be successful and get married and be disease-free. You don't have any control over the injustices in the war in this world. You don't have control over natural disasters and earthquakes that come. You know, you don't have any, if you're honest, you're facing all of life and you're really anxious because you can't control, you can't manipulate, because your face is something that's beyond your capacities, your understanding. That's why in life it says don't be afraid because you're not called to control life, you're not God. But that's why on the positive sense, we're called to fear God because there is a little bit of trembling, but before God, he is also bigger than our understanding capabilities but because God is good and he's revealed himself as holy and just and loving, when we're before God, we are called to fear him, to reverence him, to tremble before him and to be drawn into him. The world, bigger than us, we can't control. God, bigger than us, he controls us. That's the key to addressing your anxieties and your fears, is to understand that you're always placed as a finite, broken human being in this world, in a place where everything in life is bigger than you. Do you know why? Because you're not king of this world, Jesus is. Do you know why it feels that this world is a scary place? Because as competent, as type A, strategic as you are, you are a finite human being. You're not called to control the world. You can't. But you could take this innate desire and place it before God and say, God is in control. So don't be fearful of the Lord, or don't be fearful of the world. Don't be scared. Don't be anxious, but fear the Lord. Take that innate desire that says, this world and this life is bigger than me, and it is, but place those aspirations, those desires and emotions before God. That's what I think chapter 15 is trying to tell us. Now in verse 1, Abram I think he had two different kinds of fears, and God's going to speak into this. So there's one 
that some commentators say that Abram is probably anxious and he's scared because there's something external. He just defeated four kings, and some say maybe he was scared because these kings would retaliate. There'd be revenge. No, that's pretty scary. You always got to watch your back. But I think the deeper fear here is not the external danger of retaliation. I think it's an internal emotional fear. God, where am I, son? So Abram, he's a mess here. There could be external danger of retaliation, but in his experience, as he looks forward, he says, God, where is my son? And God takes Abram's fears and he brings it to himself because the word of the Lord came to him and he reassures him in his word. Don't fear, Abram. Don't worry. I'll be your shield. Your reward will be very great. Things will be okay. So he's scared about the fear around him, but he's also anxious about the vulnerability within him. He can't control, where is my kid? Where are the promises? God, what are you going to do? And he says, fear not, Abram. I'll be your shield. Your reward will be very great. So what do you do with your fears and anxieties here? Well, when, in the Bible, when it says in verse 1, I am your shield, there are, actually, there are actually five different words in the Hebrew that may be about shield and shelter, but two are really about military shields. Two words for military shields. One word in Hebrew is a small round shield, everyday use for your typical soldier infantry. The other word for shield is a big rectangular one used for special elite forces, but also special circumstances. So there's a small round one, there's a large rectangle one. The word here, I am your shield, is actually the small everyday round shield. Because the larger full body shields were used on some occasions, but the smaller shield will always be with a soldier, a constant companion. Sometimes God becomes a large shield in the times of your crisis, but in the everyday realities, what that passage and that imagery brings is to say, God is with me every day. Everyday anxieties, everyday shield, The round, everyday shield for the infantry, the everyday person like you and me, we're normal people, everyday people, everyday anxieties. We need an everyday God who's powerful and in control. See, most of us aren't really facing dangers outside of us where armies are trying to kill us. There are dangers outside of us, sure. There's disease, there's there's, there was COVID, there's, there's war, there's traffic, who knows? There's a lot of dangers outside of us, but the way that you're going to be able to address the anxieties and fears within you is to know that God will be your everyday shield. Every day you face it. So this is how you face and deal with your anxieties. You don't suppress them. Say, oh, I'm strong enough, and if I'm anxious, and I sh-, you know, if I'm anxious, I'm a weak Christian, because only strong Christians never feel anxious. No, that's not. You gotta be honest with your emotions. Be honest with your experiences. So you don't suppress them, but you also don't vent them, saying that I'm gonna just get angry at the world and just do whatever I want and curse the world and people around you. So you don't want to suppress your anxieties because they just build up and then you'll implode. But you also don't want to vent your anxieties because you'll implode people around you. What you want to do is actually face your fears. That's the whole idea of a shield, right? When you have a shield, you're facing people who are against you. A shield, you don't necessarily run away, and you just don't vent, but you face your shield. So you look head on to your anxieties and your stress, and you can name probably three of them in your life. What are the top three stresses and anxieties? And you face them. Face them with the promises of God that he's our everyday round shield, that he's in control. Because no matter what, you're always placing something beyond you, beyond our capacities, capabilities. What are you going to do? Well, you need a shield. And God says, trust me, my word, I promise I'll be with you forever. 
I won't promise that you won't suffer, but I promise that I'll be with you during your suffering. I can't promise that life won't be hurtful and painful and unjust, but God says, I promise that in the big picture, I could redeem that, that there's a greater reward at the end. For us, it's going to be the kingdom of God. So you don't want to just suppress them. You don't want to vent them, but you want to face them because God is your everyday shield. In other words, friends, don't shrivel up because you're so stressed, but also don't try to become bigger by controlling and exploding. There's this one commentator, Larry Richards. He has a beautiful phrase about living in faith, and that's what it means to really carry your shield. He says, faith faces the facts, but it also faces the fact of God. Does that make sense? Faith faces the facts, but also faces the fact of God. So with Abraham, he's facing the facts. He's honest and true about realities of life. Just defeated four kings, PTSD, they're going to attack me and have retaliation. God, where the heck is my son? It's been years at this point. It faces the facts. I'm old. My wife's old. This has no hope, any human possibility. He faces the facts, but beyond that, he faces the fact of God. And the fact of God says, I love you. I'm with you. The word of the Lord came to you. I'll be your shield. Abraham, don't worry. I'll be your reward. Can you believe it? Can you live your life holding on to the promises of God while facing the facts of this world? Can you believe in the fact of God who's transcendent and wonderful and beautiful, but he loves you and he controls this world and he's mysterious because we won't know everything, but we've known enough to trust him in the things that we don't know so you could face the facts of this world but not be lost in despair. That's why God says to Abram, come on, Abraham, let's go for a walk. It's a nice night out, isn't it? Takes Abraham outside. It's a beautiful night. Look up in the stars, Abram. Look at the stars. If you can count the number of stars, that's how many children you're going to have. You're fearful about one. Trust me, I'll be your shield. Look at the stars. I'm going to make you the father of many nations. And if you could hold on to this, then you'll get through life because I'll be your shield. Read with me verses 5 to 6. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Don't have time to do this. But that's how God reassured Abram through his word, because Abram faced the facts and he faced the fact of God. But in verse 6 is actually a very important verse that Paul quotes in Romans, but also Galatians. We're not going to get into it, but it's really to say, because Abram believed and Abram didn't do anything, God counted him as his very own. That's what we call the doctrine of justification, but it's saying that you could be clean, you could be accepted, you could be innocent, not because of any of your own good works. That's why Christianity is the only religion that says you can be accepted not by what you do, but what God has done for you. Because every other religion says you want to be accepted by the God you worship, you got to do this. You got to live like this. You got to give and be generous like this. If you do this, you'll be accepted. Christianity is the only one that says just believe and then you'll be righteous. He's going to count you as righteous for you accountants and CPAs out there. He's not counting it one, two, three, four, five. He's accounting for it. He's saying, You believed in me by my grace. I'm accepting you. You're full, clean, full citizen. You're my son. And that means if you believe in Jesus here, friends, God counts you as his very own, counts you as righteous, holy, clean, accepted. 
doesn't matter how much you pray or how much you read the Bible. It doesn't matter how much you give and how much you serve. That definitely matters. But if you want the reassurance that God will never let you go, he says, you are mine. I count you as my very own, clean and holy. You went from this side of the debit side of the general ledger to the other side as an asset. I accept you, you're mine, not because of anything you've done, but because you believed in Jesus. That's what he did with Abraham in verse 6. Abraham faced the facts of life, but looked at the fact of God. And that's how he was reassured, and that's how he's comforted. So friends, if you've, before we go on to our second point, which is shorter, when you're looking at the anxieties of your life, the fears of your life, you can name them. And it's not saying, oh, you know, just discount that. No, be honest about your fears and anxieties. Be real. Face the facts. But don't ever miss the fact of God who says, if you believe in Jesus, you're mine. No one's going to take you away. I'm your shield. I'm your reward. It's going to hurt for a little while. It's going to be painful, disappointments and failures. But I'll be your shield. You're mine. I'm never going to let you go. Here's your reward. Glory in heaven for me. Can you wait for that? Can you live for that? Can you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, resonate in your soul with the truths and promises of God because the word of the Lord came to you? Jesus Christ died for you, gave his life for you, resurrected you, so that now you are counted righteous in him. That's how you face the facts, but also face the fact of God. But let's move on to our second point. God reassures Abraham of the son, but he also reassures him of the land, which is essentially verses 7 to 21. But Abraham, he still needs comfort and reassurance. And in verse 8, this is what Abram says. O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I going to get the land, the real estate? And you know what God says? It's really interesting. He says, bring me some animals and cut them in half. Isn't that weird? Bring, them me, bring me some animals, I'm going to cut them in half. Now, for those of you who are lawyers, you're going to like this because essentially God says, You'll possess the land because I'm going to give it to you. I promise. And in order to reassure you, let's sign a contract. Now, in Old Testament language, they call it a covenant. It's an oath. But basically says, Abraham, in his heart, God, will I get the land? God says, yeah, you'll get the land. But I'm going to sign it. So let's sign the contract. See, when you and I actually sign a deal, we need a contract because it says, if I have a breach of contract, there's a penalty. Then we sign on the dotted line. It's essentially the same thing in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 15. They don't sign on the dotted line. The way they do their contract is that they sign in blood. Get some animals, cut them in half, and then let's make a deal. In verses 9 to 11, God says, collect these animals, cut them in half. We sign contracts. They cut animals. And this is the idea back then of how they do contracts. When you cut the animals in two, you lay these animals side by side. So there's bloody it's a massacre. There's two pieces of every animal. And that's how they did the contract because each side of the animal represented the two parties in the contract. And then what they did with the two parties is that they would walk together through the two animals. You pass through the pieces as you walk through the bloodied animals. And the idea is to say, you and I, we made a blood oath. If either of us fail the side of our contract, may what happened to these animals happen to us. Man, it's a life and death ordeal. And I'm glad we could sign contracts here today because I would never want to do a contract in this way. Cut the animals, walk through the animals, and we're basically saying, I'm going to fulfill my side, I'm going to fulfill my side. If either of us fail, 
then may whatever happened to these animals happen to us. May we be cut. May we die. May our inside guts be turned inside out. And that's how they signed the contract. But here's the difference, friends. Here's the beauty of the gospel. With this covenant in verse 17, God and Abraham don't walk through the pieces. Actually, only God walks through by himself. Read verse 17 with me. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. This is what they call a theophany. That's really a picture of who God is. There are actually two words here. One word is translated a smoking fire pot. One word here is translated as a blazing torch. The first word could be translated as smoke, and the second one could be lightning. Smoke and lightning, fire and light, however you want to understand this. But these two words both really convey who God is because later on in Exodus, when this guy Moses goes up the mountain on Sinai to get the commandments, if you know that God was speaking to Moses on top of that mountain, how does God appear to Moses? Through light and smoke, lightning, fire, and smoke. So this is God. He just comes down in this smoke and lightning, and it says in verse 17, God walks by himself. Do you know why? Because God is saying, Abram, I'm going to give you the land. I guarantee it so much that if I fail, I'm going to kill myself. Self-maledictory. I'm going to take the punishment myself. That's the gospel. That's grace. He's basically saying, Abraham, don't worry about fulfilling your part because you're going to fail anyways. The only way that I can guarantee in my grace that, Abraham, you're going to get this land is if I do it myself. So I'm going to sign the contract myself, and God walks through the pieces, and he says, if anybody actually fails their part, whether God or Abraham, I'm going to be cut in half. I'm going to be bloodied. I'm going to be split. I'm going to be turned inside out. That's the idea of this covenant. Now, I had a friend years ago who I heard when he was speaking at VBS, for some reason chose to speak on Genesis 15 at an elementary school VBS. And the way that he illustrated this passing through the pieces is that he took a stuffed animal, and I guess he prepped it, and then he ripped it in half before these kids, and he set it on the stage and said, this is what God did, and he walked through this torn stuffed animal, which I think was like a teddy bear. The boys are laughing and they're crying, and there's a little girl that's crying on the end. That's essentially what God is doing. He went by himself. And here's the beauty, friends. God passed through the pieces. Either Abraham fails or God fails, and he'll cut himself in half. Who failed? Abraham, you, and me. That means God fulfilled his word, and he says, if anybody, Abraham, or all those who are represented, or myself, if either of us fail, I'll pass through the pieces. I'm going to kill myself. I'm going to be cut up. Do you know how God actually cut himself up? Do you know how God actually split himself open? By sending his son, Jesus, to die on the cross for you and me. And God says, I'm going to fulfill my end. Abraham and all humanity, you guys failed. You sinned. You broke my commandments. You didn't hold up your end of the bargain, but I'm still giving you the land, giving you heaven, giving you blessings, giving you a relationship. And the way that I could do this is because punishment still has to be given, justice still has to be given, and justice fell on his very own son. On the cross, Jesus was cut up. He became the circumcision for us. Jesus is the one that on the cross, spiritually speaking, he was torn inside out. 
He was scourged and he was bloodied, and on the cross, God poured his wrath and said, I'm going to pass through the pieces, and Jesus, my son, will be the animal, the living sacrifice once and for all that would receive the punishment and the wrath of his very own father, because you know why? You and I can fulfill the contract, but God says, okay, you failed, but I'm going to fulfill it. Jesus is the one who passed through the pieces for us. And because he did this, the promise to Abraham becomes just as much assured to the promise to you, saying, yeah, you're... God will never let you go. I'm always going to be with you. I'm always going to walk by your side. It says this world is complex, it's confusing, it's scary, and it's fearful, and I can't control everything in this world. You and I can't do that, but God says, look at the facts and look at the fact of God. I guaranteed it to you. We have a clearer picture than Abraham does. Imagine being poor Abraham watching this in a vision. We see the clearer picture. Who failed in the contract? We did. How did God actually commit himself to being cut in pieces because of our sin and failure. We see how he did this. It's called the cross of Jesus Christ, by which the world was crucified to me, and I was crucified to the world. That's how God did it. So if you look to Jesus, he did what you and I couldn't do. The only innocent one who fulfilled his contract, but then he paid our penalty. Have you ever done that in any worldly contract? You binding agreement, someone else fails, you make them pay the penalty, but Jesus God, he does it differently. He says, you fail the contract. You breach a contract. I'm going to walk through. I'm going to give you the reward, but I'm also going to pay your penalty. I'm going to suffer your hell. I'm going to give you heaven. I'm going to wipe your sin away and give you my righteous life. I'm going to forgive you, make you a son, and I'm going to become an orphan on the cross because, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm going to go down to the depths of punishment so that you can receive the heights of heaven, because Jesus passed me the pieces for you. So how do you need assurance and comfort, friends? God will be your shield. His word comes to you, and the gospel says, I will be with you always. I pass you the pieces. It's guaranteed. It's yours as long as you believe in him. Abraham believed in God. It was counted towards him as righteousness. You believe in Jesus. It's given to you by your faith and belief in Jesus Christ. So never, never forget the facts of your life. But never, never, ever forget that the fact of God is Lord over your life, who passed through the pieces for you. In the gospel of the Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, let's pray. Let's turn to the Lord. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word that we can humbly and genuinely confess this world is scary and we have fears and anxieties and stress and we need reassurance, comfort. It can come to us in worship and through community, but ultimately our reassurance comes to us in your Son by your Spirit and your Word. Thank you for being our reward. Thank you for being our shield. Thank you, Lord, that you passed through the pieces. You fulfilled your side of the covenant, God, your contract, but you pay the penalty for our failure on our side of the contract. And we thank you, God, for your grace and love, and we worship you in response to all of this. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.